Good evening, everyone, or whenever you decide to be listening, you are listening to the Fat Dog Vinyl Podcast. We are located here at 7 North Main Street in beautiful downtown Mount Vernon, Ohio. Um, I am one of your co-hosts, Matt Bacher, and I'm sitting here with... I'm John Wareham from uh, Fredericktown, up the road here. Just up the road. So uh, essentially what we're going to be doing on Fat Dog Vinyl Podcast is... We're always going to have different hosts, co-hosts, guests. Um, I want this to be a community show. So if you're out here listening and you want to come on and co-host an episode or guest on an episode or come talk about your favorite artist, argue with me about who's a better guitarist, or just talk about your experience with your record collecting ways, uh, make sure to get in contact with us on social media. And like, for example, um, John's here on this episode and we're going to be talking about Russia's moving pictures. And I was mistaken. I thought this was a 70s record, but this is what, 1981? It's 81, yeah. yeah. 81. So first things first, we are getting straight down into it because this is an album I know quite a bit about, but this sounds like John's bread and butter. So, John, tell me about <laughs> what's square one for moving pictures for you. When was the first time you heard this record? I got into Rush when I was in high school as a freshman. My friend Todd Klein, and shout out to Todd Klein, my friend Todd and I got into it at the same time as a freshman in high school. And I got Exit Stage Left first, which is a live record, yeah. which is one after this one. And, and that one first. And I was like, oh, this is great. There was a big drum solo in it. And it became like, okay, what, you know, what, can, what can I get? So I got Signals, mm-hmm. and I got a Fly By Night, which was before in the 75. And then I got this one, all kind of in the same you know, month or so. And this one is, to me, the best one they have because of the songs on it and the musicality on it. Um, it has Tom Sawyer, it has Limelight, it has some of the songs that are played on radio. Yes, it does seem pound for pound a record to make everyone happy. Um, obviously, you're always going to have your fans that have a deep cut favorite or something, but, you know, for such a commercially recognized album, it still holds up. Um, even though it has great individual songs, it still makes for a great start to finish listen, which, you know, it makes it a great thing to have on vinyl. Yeah. The, yeah. The first on the first side on vinyl, it's Tom Sawyer, a red barchetta, YYZ limelight in that order. And then the fun in the backside is camera. eye, witch hunt and vital signs. And those are not necessarily the more known ones. The first side is like, it's like one after the other murderer's row of, Big time songs, you know. That's a heavy hitter, and I mean, probably as far as commercial appeal, something you'd hear on rock radio, you know, that's probably the biggest four-song stretch in the entire discography for them. Yeah. It's very interesting because the band had shifted a lot. You know, they had some more simple rock music. They had some longer, more conceptual prog rock, but I, I really do feel like Moving Pictures was such a sweet spot in the discography, something to make everyone happy. Yeah, yeah, Tom Sawyer was, uh, well, Limelight actually was the first released single, and they were playing this, playing these songs in the tour before they, before the album even came yeah. out. They were playing it in 1980, some of the songs on tour, and then they finally, and the album came out, believe it or not, 42 years ago today. Whoa. <laughs> Perfect, and today on is February 12th. February 12th, we are recording this live yeah. on Super Bowl Sunday. And I looked at, I looked that up, and I was like, that is today. That's crazy, yeah, 42 um, years ago. Last uh, yeah. Sunday when we recorded um, on an episode of the Clamstock Crescendo, which is a traditional show hosted by Andrew and I, we did Nutramilk Hotels in the Airplane Over the Sea, and that album just turned 25, 
uh, this February as well. So wow. we are um, a little bit of a little bit of God's magic working here at these yeah, anniversaries. It was weird, man, because I saw that on the I saw it in my notes, and I was like, "Wow, that's that's exactly today." So, um, so 42 years ago, 1981, and I was um, how old was I? I was 12. Crazy. So, I mean, I wasn't born until 95. So, obviously, any rush that was coming out in my day, you know, they were. I've only known them to be superstars. Um, I know they did that big live performance record in Cleveland, Ohio. I know that was a big thing back in the day when that came out. Um, one of the things I always thought was super interesting about Rush is, for those who don't know, they're Canadian bands um, from the greater Toronto area, I believe. And the song Working Man got picked up on a local Cleveland radio mm -hmm. station. That's right. Yeah. So Rush, in a way, even though they're a Canadian band, you know, they've always had a wonderful love for Cleveland, Ohio. And any band that loves Cleveland is a band for the people. Right, yeah. And, they, and then by... And they were elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in mm -hmm. 2013, which is also in Cleveland. So that actually kind of made, they made the circular yes, sense. A nice synergy. So let's hop right in. Um, we try to hit at least a mention of every song on the album, but it is hard to keep things compact. Right off the bat, Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Tom Sawyer is the first song. Um, it's obviously the most known, or I shouldn't say obviously, it's probably the most known one. Uh, they play it on every talk show. If they're on a talk show, Stephen Colbert, they played it on that show. On the Colbert Report, the previous one, they played it on, you know, they play it everywhere. In every concert they play it, it's their, it's their go-to song. It's usually toward the end. Yeah. At the time, at the time in, the album came out, it was the beginning or like, you know, sort of the beginning, but now it's at the end. Or not now, but. It's just, it, it's always going to make sense. Yesterday, yeah. um, it was just a. A busy Saturday on the shop, I wanted to throw on a record. I'm like, I'm going to pregame this. Let's throw on some moving pictures. We had customers at the store. You know, the synth and the drums for Tom Sawyer kick in. I'm like, this is it. This is a record store moment if I've yeah. ever lived one myself. Yeah, and, and Neil Peart um, played, and he said that's the hardest song for him to play. Really? And he wrote the song. I mean, he wrote the part. So he made it so difficult for himself that it was a challenge every time. And that's something I learned uh, more recently is a lot of time drummers just show up and, and, you know, keep the beat, keep the rhythm. But I, d I never realized how much he was into poetry and lyrics and the actual songwriting behind the band, yeah. which is crazy because not only is he just an absolute legend on the instrument, what he was able to bring to the table in the band as far as, like, the ethos, the songwriting, um, the lore, the lyricism, like all the great things we associate with Rush, I had no idea. So he had yeah. a lot on his plate. After the first record, he wrote all the lyrics on all the songs. Which is crazy. Yeah. I can't think of another drummer that exactly. filled a role like that. Yeah. And obviously, it's like even people I know that might not be the biggest fan of Getty's voice or Alex's guitar or something, everyone can agree Neil is uh, Yeah. Probably top three in rock music to pick up the sticks. I don't he think would, anyone yeah, wants to always, disagree with that. Yeah, he would always get number one or number two or number three rock drummer of all time between Moon and Bonham and him and a few other ones in there. Alex Van Halen was in there sometimes. But that's usually your top five is those four guys and then somebody else. Usually. Yeah, and they all h held it down until the dark horse of the 1990s, Jimmy Chamberlain of the Smashing Pumpkins. But yeah, Jimmy Chamberlain, <laughs> the yeah. Music, like, you know, there's just so many great rock drummers, but like, Matt really Cameron is great too. Yeah, Matt, Matt Cameron, Cameron was wonderful. You know, there were so many great 
ones of the era, but really Neil was just very influential and he held it down. That's what's so crazy about Rush is three people. Yeah. I know it's been said a million times, but that's, that's a lot of sound for uh, three people. And really their origin story, too, just how they got instruments was was really interesting. So, And, and two of the three were immigrants yeah. from a different different countries, obviously. Um, and Getty Lee is Jewish, and his parents were from Poland. Yes. And then his parents were in the Holocaust. They were Holocaust yes. survivors. His mom, especially. His dad died in the 60s, I think. But his mom, his mom lived all the way up until... A year or two ago, and she was in her 90s. Which is just so interesting to add to the lore of the band because it's such a coming off the crazy, one of the craziest points. Yeah. And recorded human history, being an immigrant in Canada, and just like, from my understanding in the documentary, it just sounded like Getty and Alex were just like, my friend Jacob and I back in the day is like, let's get guitars and let's start a band yeah. together. You know, yeah. it really is this stripped down, wholesome story where kids just wanted to get instruments for the holidays and and take it from there so and really tom sawyer it does set the tone but it really it just does nothing but pick up from there yeah that and it was in and that song has been in rock band and been a guitar you know all these yeah. different kind of video games and stuff and and that's the one that's pretty much the one that everybody either knows or likes or has heard a million times uh, because it's always been played, it's always been associated. It was in a movie. It was in, well, two of these were in "I Love You, Man" the movie. That was one of them. Really, I've, I've never seen the film. Uh, the film, they're in it. Rush is in it, and Jason Segel and Paul Rudd are the main stars in it. And they play limelight, sing limelight, and they play and they jam on on Tom Sawyer in the movie. Have you ever seen the great uh, Canadian TV show Trailer Park Boys? I've heard of it. I've not seen it, but I know there. I know Alex. I think has been involved in that. I promise you, watch the Rush episode. <laughs> I promise you. Alex is fantastic. He's a great sport in it. It is such a chaotic TV show. But Bubbles, one of the main characters, is obsessed with Rush. And at one point, they kidnap Alex. And the friends are trying to get Bubbles in for the show. And it is just great sense of humor for such a technically proficient band. A band that yeah. I think to people that don't know, they come off as very serious. You know, yeah. this huge sci-fi, like energy but really rush does have a nice sense of humor and they're very humble too if i was that good at anything i don't think i'd be as humble as they are yeah they for a long time they were deadly serious i've seen them in concert i don't know 12 or 15 times wow and every time i see them they're just straight to the point no talking here's the next song here's this here's some sort of the end and there's never usually any stuff until the toward the end of their careers in the last i don't know 10 or so years they started to add like Eugene Levy and like different SCTV people and um, um, Paul Flaherty, Paul Flaherty, yeah, the, the guys like that yeah. from that show. And they were cameos and they, they played. One guy played Count Floyd, and then Count Floyd introduced one of the songs in the in the show. And and they had like South Park. They had South Park stuff. They were doing yeah. you know these shows were sort of coming in and out now. Finally, they were showing their sense of humor. Yeah. So moving on to track two, Red Barchetta. What are Red your Barchetta. thoughts on that one? Red Barchetta is a nice one. It's a nice song. It starts, it starts slowly and and builds very nicely. Yeah, it takes time to set a scene, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Not as to the point as some of the other songs on the record. It's a a slower moving one. In a way, it's I I think some of my favorite vocals from Getty on it too. I think he does a really nice job. Yeah, the guitar the guitar opening is great and. It, it starts slow and ends slow, so it like starts mellow, yeah. 
and goes and goes and goes and then it peaks and then it drops and it's nice. And that Barchetta is actually a real car. I've, you know, it's a Ferrari. Really? It's a Ferrari. Yeah, it's a red car. Yeah. I didn't know that. And a, that's I, f- I forgot the name. It's like an MM, Ferrari MM, something or other in Barchetta. I think it. Oh, yeah. And, and the story of the song was based on a, an, a, a book, I think, by Richard Foster. And it was okay. called a nice, a nice Morning Drive was the name of that. I think it's a book or a story. I forget which. But, but Foster wrote it. And so Neil sort of, he didn't borrow it. I mean, he didn't, like, take it. But he sort of, inspired by that, wrote this song about this car. Right. No, that's something I find myself doing when I'm writing. If I listen to a story, sometimes if if the story moves me in a certain way, I'll be telling other people about it. And it's just, you know, how a spoken word and things are translated in stories more over time, you know. Yeah. In a while, like you just take certain bits and pieces and, you know, over time it just transforms a little bit. So, you know, that's what I think is just really cool about the record that it just moves into that. It's really nice transition. Yeah, and then the, then after that is the the sort of benchmark for instrumental songs. Is Hard to agree. It's a pr- it might be my favorite song I've ever heard by Rush. Yeah. Um, Getty's vocals can be a lot to handle sometimes, for better for worse. You know, it it's definitely can be an acquired taste. YYZ, he has just honed it on the bass. One yeah. of the best songs as far as the bass guitar goes. And I told Phil Hicks, owner of Fat Dog Vinyl, the other day, YYZ is the abbreviation for Toronto's airport. Airport. And did you know that the the opening pattern is Morse code, is Morse code yeah. for YYZ as well? Yeah. No, it's so layered. Um, this is a very millennial take here. The first time I heard YYZ was in Guitar Hero. Yeah. And, you know, I was just a middle schooler. I enjoyed rock music. I hadn't heard a lot of the legendary rock music outside of what I'd heard from, you know, my parents and stuff. And so I had never heard this song, and I'm playing YYZ, and it's like I always found myself forming a story to it in my head. It's very melodic. Um, the bass part is super technical. It's very spastic and tweaky. And I just don't, I can't think of anyone else who plays like that. And it's so fascinating to me for yeah. that reason. And the, f- the fact that there's a call and, call and response between yes. the bass and the drums. Absolutely. Um, there is the, and the guitar solo in the song is great. Is and, then it? There's a, and there's keyboard and there's all kinds of stuff going on.
the guitar too it sounds like i want to say it sounds like a little middle eastern or something he's got he got is a that done intentionally that. like I, I, that's I what imagine, that's yeah. what i take out of it i don't know if that was done on purpose but yeah. it definitely yeah it, it's not what i'm expecting and then when the synth part kicks in at the end too it like slows the song down then it rolls back into it and it's just it's yeah. so much to to follow you know is there a music video for this for that, no. There are, on this particular album, there are three quote-unquote videos, but they're all shot in the studio that they made the record, which is called Le Studio. Oh, perfect. Um, which so Le Studio is on John's T-shirt yeah. right now. Le Studio f in Quebec, which is no longer a studio, but it was for a long time. Yeah. They made this. They made Permanent Waves. They made a few other ones. And this one, and so they have three in-studio videos of them just playing along with the song. Limelight is one, uh, Tom Sawyer is one, and Vital Signs is one. But but this one doesn't have a video. So, I mean, moving into Limelight, you know, that's another one. It's like, YYZ, for an instrumental, you wouldn't think it would have commercial success, but for instrumental rock music, it really did. And it's not super approachable. Like, it is very creative. It is very different. It is very inventive by Raj. But then it flows right into Limelight, which is one of Rush's most, like, just commercially successful. Like, yeah. it really is a good catch-all song that everyone seems to like. Yeah, and the and if you listen carefully, the guitar and the drums, really, too, are, are so intricately written. Yes. And it's not like it's just thrown together. I mean, Neil thinks this stuff out. Neil, the drummer. Alex's guitar you know, parts are just very intricate and he's got different chord progressions and different chord things if you listen carefully you can hear that and you're like i've never heard those kinds of moves before and you know in a chord or a chord progression where and he has you know he's got i mean it's it's hard to explain guitar i play bass and drums so i don't play guitar but you can hear that you can hear all kinds of n you know, very nice very you know complicated parts Yes, even their commercial, s more straightforward rock songs are still. <laughs> it's not just simple power chords and yeah and generic lyrics. Like even their, you know, more balanced work. Is still is just crazy, <laughs> which is why I think this album is so interesting. Is because it really has a lot of like progressive thinking on it, but at the same time. A lot of these songs can hold their own back to back with, you know, an ACDC track or a Led Zeppelin yeah. track on like rock radio, which is so fascinating about it. Yeah. Limelight, if you find on, on YouTube, you can find the Jason Siegel, Paul Red version of Limelight mm -hmm. on YouTube from the from that movie. They sang it in the movie, but they also made a recording of it. So you can actually hear them singing it, which is wild.
feel like that's something that would be really cool for a podcast episode is musician cameos and music because one of my favorite artists of all yeah. time jonathan richmond him and his drummer tommy larkins are in a tree singing a theme song for there's something about mary a film that like came out when i was too young but oh yeah the film starts with like yeah jonathan richmond my opinion one of the best songwriters of all time and i had no idea he basically wrote the theme song and it's such an interesting cameo so it is really and like Lars Ulrich is in a, is in a movie too, in a Russell Brand Jason Segel <laughs> movie actually, it is I forgot what it's called but um, uh, yeah but he's in that too so like guys like that Lars you know, Lars played himself and probably Rush most played famously in this movie, you know? not playing themselves so I just watched David Bowie's Labyrinth for the first time the other day, which every oh, yeah. now and then yeah, you yeah, just yeah. need a, a really strange eighties film to just scratch the itch and that was fascinating that really yeah watch Blue Velvet if you haven't I'll seen have it to yet. check Blue that out nuts. so. Moving on, that's that side right. A, so we're <laughs> we're flipping it. So side A, yeah. Give me your general impressions of obviously side A and side B are cohesive in a lot of ways, but side B is a different monster altogether. Yeah, S- side B, I I really enjoy the camera eye, which is yeah. the first one on side B. Mm-hmm. It's ten minutes long. It's their last one of those ten minute long songs. They did a lot of those in the seventies, Hemispheres and La Via Strangiato and. By touring the snow dog was pretty long, and this was a you know a ten minutes long. It's sort of it's sort of broken down in 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 two parts if you if you listen carefully. And Neil Peart again wrote this, and he wrote it sort of based on where he was walking, and the experiences he was having while walking in London, and then New York. And if you can hear the different, you can actually kind of kind of hear it throughout. The first half is London, the second half is New York. See, that's what I love about doing the Fat Dog Vinyl Podcast. Andrew and I teach each other things every week, and I'm like, you know, it's just really interesting to hear this stuff, or sometimes, like, do you know what this song's about? And sometimes, like, I'll I'll have no idea, but that's really what's interesting. And, you know, I, I think that's really an interesting experience. And like I said, just to point out, this is the drummer writing all the lyrics. Right. Yeah. He wrote that. And he wrote, yeah, he wrote that. And he wrote all the lyrics and he wrote, you know, the th- like the feel of it. And you can kind of hear the difference between London and New York. I mean, it's kind of subtle, but you can kind of hear it. And in the, f- in the first part of it, it has a really, really right. cool drum feel, which I really like. And the end has the guitar solo, which is like a solo for everybody at once. It's guitar, but then the bass goes nuts and the drums go crazy at the same time. Not crazy, but but it really fits together as opposed to, you know, like it, like a Van Halen solo where Michael Anthony's yeah. playing C the whole time. It's not that. It's like a complex mix of like three solos at the same time.
Right. So side B really and just being able to take the time for a ten minute song. Yeah. On a commercially successful record is like something we don't always get the privilege of anymore. And there's still a market for those long songs. Sometimes like the slow burn is what people want. And if a song's good enough, it flies by. Yeah. The Smashing Pumpkins have a fourteen minute song called Starla. And every time I'm on the back half of Pisces is scary, and I'm like, whoa, that was 14 minutes. Yeah. Sometimes you don't want to rush the musicians. Like, you know, some musicians can play a great 20-second guitar solo and a lot of notes and a lot of time, but sometimes the space is, is needed, you know. Obviously, that's the whole foundation of something like a jam band or a lot of prog rock is like, you know, we're going to take the time, we're going to tell stories with our instruments, and we're not going to rush. We're going to leave the space here. And that's something Rush was great at. They could play fast and eccentric solos, and they could blow your face off really fast. And Neil was obviously very uh, quick-handed on the drums. Yeah, yeah. But also they left a lot of space, and, you know, they do have just a lot of sci-fi energy. Obviously, sci-fi was as big as ever in the, in the 1970s, and they were able to do that really well in the 70s and 80s and kind of carry that energy. They had a little bit of that, yeah, exactly, and and some of that in the '80s and '90s, a little bit in the '90s, a little yeah. sprinkling, but that was about it. They didn't after the '80s and moved on to other topics and other other things, you know. On on Grace Under Pressure, they had some some sci-fi stuff going on, and that was in '84. Yeah, um, but after that, you know, sort of, you know, some here and there. Because I'm the most annoying co-host, I'm going to surprise you with this question because it's the burning question. Do you have a favorite song on the record? YYZ. Really? Okay, yeah. we're in agreement. Wow, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's YYZ is it's that and Camera Eye would be like a like a like a two. Like YYZ is one and Camera Eye is two. It's very hard, and a lot of people do not like. Oh, I can't pick a favorite, man. There's usually, and I mean, it's okay to admit favorites change and stuff, but. Like I said, I think YYZ might be my favorite Rush song, as well as, you know, you'll have to help me here on the title. It is on Hemisphere. Is it Cygnus X? Well, Cygnus X1 is on Farewell to Kings, that. which is the one before that one. And then yes. Hemisphere, they refer to it again. They ref which one has, like, the – it's, like, got the brain on the cover? That's the Hemispheres, guy. yeah. Okay, yeah. The Cygnus one that's on Hemispheres? It was the, well, the Cygnus, the Cygnus – X1 is on Farewell to Kings, the song. Yeah. And then Hemispheres, which is the following record, yeah. it has the same themes, and they mention Cygnus on it, but it's not called that. Because Hemispheres, the song, is the whole side one. So in that, they mention Cygnus on occasion, and have, have some of the same melodies from the previous album is in that one. Yeah, see, I'm not super deep on everything rush has ever done and i know i was poking around that album and that just blew my mind yet again it was getty's bass like yeah um a lot of rush's music starts and ends with like getty is just so crazy on bass and how he does it and sings at the same time is crazy i mean yeah. it's i mean paul mccartney does not he gets credit for everything in the world i guess but like sometimes people are talking too much about his voice and not ab about his proficiency on the bass and just to be able to hold that down while playing the bass so proficiently is crazy. Yeah, there's one song on a later record of Rush where the the bass part and the vocal part are so wildly different Yeah, that, that it took him forever to get that to match because it was so – the bass is so busy and the, and the vocal is just 
like casually going over it, and he he couldn't get it down because he was so so completely different. Yeah. So, what's our next track? We're well, Vital Signs is the next track. Vital, Vital Signs, signs. is. Uh, I'm sorry. No, it's Witch Hunt. Witch Hunt is the next one. Witch Hunt is good. Um, it's not. It's not the previous limelights and stuff, but it's a good tune. The cool part about that is that was the first song of a tr- of a trilogy called Fear. And so they made this trilogy, and but it was in it was inverted order. So, so Witch Hunt was part three, and then Signals, the following record, had one called The Weapon that was part two, and then the one after that was uh, um, Grace Under Pressure called The Enemy Within that was part one. So they did it in backwards order, and then in 2002 they had a record called Vapor Trails, mm-hmm. and on that was Freeze, and that was part four. Well. So that's a little bit of the yeah. the Star Wars thing is yeah. like episode four, five, six, and they had, and on Vapor Trails they called it yeah. the Freeze, which was the part four of the Gangster of Boats trilogy, which makes no sense, but it's funny because you don't have a part four of a trilogy. Now I have to ask a burning question, and you can be honest: Do you think they had this planned out ahead yeah. of time? Oh, yeah. We're gonna start three, or yeah. do you think it's a little bit of revisionist history? I, th- I think they probably planned it out because later they have a song called Limbo. Yeah. It's instrumental. And they wanted to have it called Limbo because the band was called Rush, since they had Rush Limbo. They did it on purpose. <laughs> so hilarious. they do that stuff on purpose. Yeah, because sometimes revisionist history can just get in the way of the lore. Like anyone who's a Legend of Zelda fan and has ever tried to piece together the timeline for those games knows that like yeah they're all over it's the super rough they didn't plan this out and they're going back oh we meant to do this and it's like no you did so. no, yeah yeah no but they i'm 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 fairly certain they planned that and planned that on purpose for three two one because they were like well um and all the songs do you know kind of approach fear as a theme i mean that's what they do right but whether they did it you know part three I don't know. i'm sure it was on purpose yeah Exactly, and then we're on to Vital Signs. Vital Signs is the last one, yeah. Yeah. And Vital Signs I like a lot because it was, it was, it was, bass was the prominent instrument, right? Primarily through the whole thing, it was the start, it was the main riff, and it was also the solo. And the solo was like kind of a chill bass solo, it wasn't crazy, but that was the solo. Was instead of a guitar solo, they had a bass solo. And so this was recorded in Quebec then, correct? Yeah. It was quor- recorded in late 1980, and they just had two months or so of, of mixing and stuff and put it out in February yeah, of 81. Which is <laughs> crazy. It sounds like, because um, I was poking around learning more about the album this week, and it just sounds like, you know, sometimes bands, when they're about to release a magnum opus or something as critically acclaimed as this record is, sometimes it takes them years of preparation everything's drawn out and it really just sounds like they had some good momentum from the last tour and they hop back in the studio and that's something that bands struggle with a little more yeah a lot of my favorite indie and alternative bands of the 21st century i love them to death but you get a record and then you gotta wait five years where it's like back in the 60s 70s sometimes the 80s like these bands just had these crazy runs where you couldn't slow them down. Even a lot of the bands yeah. in the 90s, they were just hitting it back to back. They would, we're going to put out an album. We're going to tour it. 
when we are touring and on the bus and in quiet moments and rehearsing, we're going to work on new music. Yeah. And then when we get back from a world tour of three or four months, okay, we're back in the studio. We're going to record it. People yeah. want us to tour it. And it's like, I know a lot of these bands filled in these gaps with just doing enough drugs to sustain themselves <laughs> to do this. I, I don't expect human beings to work like that, but a lot of bands of yesteryear, too. I mean, the Beatles are a great example. Like Yeah, they had so many records in a seven-year period. They you could argue that, like, all those albums could have been, like, five years of methodical yeah. writing, and they really just spit them out like crazy. <laughs> I don't even know how many they had in seven years, but they had a ton of them. They had, you know, in their seven or, like, seven- to eight-year period when they were, you know, like, 62 to 70, roughly. Yeah, they had a ton of stuff, uh, you know, and there were and, and a handful of them were Abbey Road and White and White Album and Charging Pepper were like great, you know. Yeah. So to kind of close us out here, because it is impossible to talk about your favorite album in about 30 or 40 minutes half the time. But I do want to close with more of the personal side of things, because on Fat Dog Vinyl Podcast, we're not just going to talk about, wow, the song has a great bass solo or this or that. Why do you think, especially as a, a high schooler, which is when a lot of human beings just really fall in love with music, pick their favorite band, so on and so forth, why was it Rush? Um, I don't know, because I w prior to that, I listened to soul music, which it was called at the time. Right on. It was like Midnight Star and yeah, Jazz yeah. Band and Michael Jackson, Rick James. Sure. And I liked that still, and that was my jam. And then all of a sudden, in high school, I got into band, I got into similar people that had similar opinions of music and who and Zeppelin and Yes and Rush and that kind of group of, of things and and I was more into that and got more into that I liked all four of them but other you know other bands that were playing that kind of music so that became my thing even though I, t I still did like other stuff jazz um, and my grandfather was a jazz musician so it was like yeah. okay cool that was part of it but I like the the rock stuff the classic rock which is what sure. it's called now then and then Rush, just for some reason, the musicianship got me because I played, and I played drums before that, but then got you know, way more into it because of him. Yeah, they're a musician's band. Yeah, and, and then I played bass because of, directly because of Getty Lee. Yeah. And I did some keyboard, too. I was doing the same stuff he would do. Like, I'd play a song on the bass and then shift the keyboard. It wasn't complicated keyboard. It wasn't sure. piano. It was just, like, chords and whatever. But I was doing that in my house. Like, as a you know, 18 year old, I was like playing the bass part, and then go to keys and start playing keys and back to bass again. I was doing that for a while because of all the musicianship that they had, and I saw them, you know, like I said, 12 or 15 times. This uh, is me trying to understand an era that I wasn't alive for. I know sometimes Rush gets a stigma as like you know, a basement dwellers band, <laughs> a Dungeons and Dragons kind of, band, yeah. like. Did everyone like Rush, or did they get passed off more to... The the funny part about this was uh, kids who were older than me in high school liked yeah. them. And so we did because, you know, sort of because they did. Yeah. They graduate, and then we become the Rush. My friend Todd, like I said, Todd and I became like the Rush people. And then younger kids, you know, in school then started to like them as well. And so we had a whole group of us that liked it you know, in various grades. And then we were in percussion ensemble in Fredericktown. We, and so Todd and I arranged Rush songs for it. I did Tom Sawyer, and he did Subdivisions. So then we played those songs for percussion ensemble. I played bass on both of them, and Todd played drums on both of them. 
and then other people were doing that too. So we graduate, and then they do it too. They arranged free will or whatever limelight, yeah. or whatever other ones, after we did. So so it was like a constant thing. <coughs> excuse me for like, I don't know, maybe ten years of like, somebody will get attached to Rush and start to you know start to you know like like him, and then somebody else will like it, and then it'll be a whole thing. And it's, it was probably a ten-year period, a ten-year stretch, of somebody doing it. You know, every couple That's years. That's really great because sometimes with generations or even grade by grade, sometimes people get a little gatekeepy with their favorite bands. Yeah. And well, no, no one actually likes Tom Sawyer. You know, that's just the one. You know, so it's it's really borderline inspiring that it kind of got like passed down between the yeah. older kids and the more impressionable younger kids, and then it just kept traveling because. You know, that's really how music survives. That's really how legacy acts get going is, you know, some bands really are perfect at encapsulating a perfect moment. But if you weren't there, you're not going to get it really. And that's something I, I think about Rush, you know. My mom was a Rush fan. I started listening to him in middle school, and it was very different. I didn't listen to any other bands that sounded quite like Rush. And really, I don't think in general they're ever I, I can't list off like – a bunch of bands that I really associate with Rush, they just kind of did their own thing. Yeah. Um, and they do have that vibe of basement, you know, basement people. And there's like a, they have a, a big fan base, but they also have a big base of, oh, I don't like them because they're this or they're that or the voices yeah. or, or they're too progressive. They have 20 minute songs or Getty, I can't stand Getty's voice, that kind of stuff. And that does happen. And that does, you know, that does, you know, occur. But there is a big base still. Yeah. If somebody says, I I don't like Getty's voice, like, I can understand that. It's very unique. But, I mean, that's often what defines the greatest voices. Like, to be fair, there are a lot of people that are wonderful singers, but I'm not going to listen to their music because it does not stick out to me plain as day. Whereas somebody like, love him or hate him, when I hear Morrissey, you know it's Morrissey. There is no other Morrissey. When I hear Billy Corrigan, oh, that's Billy, you know, where it's like a lot of other voices are, uh, (laughs) who sounds like Getty? No one. Yeah, the closest guy is probably John John Anderson from Yes, but he has, he's more of an airy sound. Yeah. And and, and Getty's more, at the time, he's he's different now, but at the time he was very screamy and yelly. He he has great control over his voice. Now now he's more melodic. yeah. Yeah, even if you don't love Getty's voice or anything... I would urge the listeners at home, try to sing any of that music. It's yeah. <laughs> it's genuinely really hard unless you're doing a very stripped down acoustic. If you get up to like Hold Your Fire in late 80s and the stuff past that, his register comes down a lot so you yeah. can sing along. But between 74 and like 80. What is it? By Torn the Snow Dog? By Torn the Snow Dog is rough because it's like way high. You know, it's yeah, way no. up there. <laughs> And it's hard to do. I could do it in school, but I can't do it now because your voice gets lower as you get older. I could, you know, I could reach that 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 spot, but I can't now. But but the lower stuff, the stuff, and you, and also when you hear him, in the in the later concerts between two thousand, like nine and fifteen when they were done. Yes. In that period, he was trying to sing that that older stuff and couldn't and couldn't reach it. And you can tell because he would crack. You can, he's cracking on some of those high notes. So if you've made it this long, thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Fat Dog Vinyl Podcast with this episode has been Matt and John. We are going to be back on the mic very soon. 
Um, you know, we want this to be a community show. Please come sit down with us. Tell us about your favorite record. Come argue with us. We will be covering jazz, hip hop, not just not just rock music. We'll talk a little bit of everything. If we've never heard of your favorite album, I will sit down and listen to it. Or just to get your personal experience, you know, we want this to be a, a diverse program. So make sure you check out Rush, Moving Pictures, and John. If somebody is getting into Rush, Moving Pictures is probably a great starting point yeah. for them. If you had to pick a very underrated one in the discography that might not get as many suggestions, what would you urge a new listener to um, check out by Rush? Well, I, I like Signals, which is the one after this, came out yeah. in 1982. And then I do like, and Test for Echo, which came out in the in the late 90s. Like, that's a good one because his voice is not as high in, in that way. Uh, and that's a really good one as well. And those are kind of not necessarily, I mean, Signals is a big one, but but Test for Echo was, you know, was, and Vapor Trails is good. Yeah. It was after that too. So some of the later ones are are great. And Snakes and Arrows, which came out in 2007, which is really good too, and that's I a chill one. On, yeah. yeah. That's a chill one. It's really... It's 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 like it's rush, but it's not as rushy as as stuff that you know, as stuff has been in the past. You know. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. We are located at Seven North Main here in Mount Vernon, Ohio. And Good moving pictures up. is here, by the way. And moving what pictures. Yeah, moving pictures is in here. Yeah. I was just spinning in a day before we recorded this, so. You know, come pick up your favorite album. Come recommend your favorite album. We're going to have shows going on all spring and summer. So come check us out. More episodes coming soon featuring Herbie Hancock, yeah. Tyler, the creator. Um, you know, who knows what we'll get ourselves into. So thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate it. Thank you.